This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hello, everybody. So I am hosting today, and we have on the panel some of our usual panelists. We have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. We have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo. Coming at you live from a backyard cornfield in Provo. <laughs> and myself, Amy Knight. And our special guest today is Jeremy Fairbank. And he Hello. is... Yeah, introduce yourself. <laughs> oh, sorry. I totally cut you off there. Yeah. No, um, my name is Jeremy Fairbank. I'm a remote software developer and consultant. I'm actually in Tennessee, a little town called Athens, which I'm sure no one has probably heard of. Um, I work for Test Stubble. Uh, we do software development and consulting. We like to help people improve software and improve teams and just make everyone uh, do awesome. So, yeah, that's me. So you said you're a remote developer and consultant? That you yes. So does that mean that you, like, absolutely refuse to ever work with people face-to-face? -face? This is a <laughs> thing, or it just yeah. so happens that you're working remotely right now? Uh, I guess it does kind of sound like an oxymoron, consultant, remote, but, yeah, totally remote. Uh, do face to face through Zoom and technologies like that. And, uh, do on sites and as well with clients. But yeah, fully remote. We're all uh, remote workers at Test Double, so it's a pretty nice gig. So, are you full time employed at Test Double, or are you like part time? Do that part time consultant? Oh yeah, full time employee. Ah, gotcha. Cool. So I'm a. I know that we've had other test double people on the show before, but I think it would be good if we talked again a little bit about test double. I'd like to know, you know, again, what is test double? What do you guys do? What do you all do? Right. So kind of our mission is uh, statement is that we believe software is broken and we're here to fix it. And what that entails is we're not only, you know, helping teams deliver. I mean, we work alongside developers to, you know, work through the backlog, get, uh, stuff shipped, but more importantly, we like to help teams improve and grow. And whether that's um, helping with agile processes or just kind of general consulting, uh, working with the product team just to work through the backlog, uh, grooming stories, um, just a host of different things, just to help teams really improve this beyond just writing software um, or, or coding um, and the ideas. Um, by the time we leave, we hope that we've left um, the this partic particular team just doing better and able to excel at what they're doing. Cool. So people excel at what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying so, to learn the ukulele. Can you make me excel at that? <laughs> sure. I'll, let me figure out the fee first, and I'll get back with you. <laughs> Good awesome. answer. So I thought that you would be a great guest to have on. Um, functional programming in JavaScript is a super popular topic. And mm -hmm. uh, we spoke together at a conference in Tennessee here called Lambda Square uh, earlier this year. And your talk just kind of stood out from the blog posts I've read and other talks I've seen on the topic because, you know, as you say in your, in your title, it was like practical functional programming. And it 
really was practical. I felt like um, you gave a lot of concepts that people could get started with really easily. And then you even kind of went, you know, a little bit further into like, you talked about Elm a little bit and kind of showed um, what more like purely functional languages would look like using kind of the same thing. So that's what we have you on to talk about today. So um, maybe to start, you talked about, I believe it's five things. And if you could kind of give us like a, you know, a very broad view and then we can dig into those deeper. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, th- I think it was actually six. So okay, sorry. Of, <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, hopefully we can cover all this because I, I know it's really exciting to me just in general. Um, I think the functional world could do a lot just in teaching materials to get things uh, sort of more practical and accessible for other developers, especially people that have not done functional at all. Um, So I just, in the talk, I kind of pinpoint some of the um, practical aspects that any software engineer is going to deal with and how we can kind of deal with those uh, or solve those problems through functional programming. So um, going through my list here. So one of the big things is just in general, sometimes it's hard to test code and that kind of dives into the concepts of purity and side effects and function um, in programming in general, where when you're dealing with side effects and we kind of get into all this jargon to a functional programming, but making HTTP requests and a function or stuff like that, you end up having to do a lot of stubbing and mocking to be able to test that code. And that's a lot of setup and that can kind of discourage you from doing those type of practices So with functional programming, if we go to kind of the the pure mindset where functions just take some arguments and they return some output based on those arguments, then it gets a lot easier to test that. And if we just, if we put all of our business logic in those type of functions, then we don't have to worry about doing so much mocking and stubbing in our tests and testing is actually enjoyable. Um, So uh, the next one is kind of a a small point, but it's the idea of... (laughs) trying to come up with names for these, but I kind of called it hard to follow code. And that's just kind of introducing this concept of imperative code versus declarative where imperative code are things like using for loops to maybe iterate through an array to do some work on that array. And so it's, it's a lot of steps that we're just throwing at the computer and it's can be hard to process immediately for other developers or ourselves if we come back to our code. So with declarative style coding, we can use things like maps on arrays or filters, those special prototype methods on JavaScript arrays and reduce the cognitive overload of what's going on in the code and, and kind of let the code reveal in itself what, what's happening. You know, if I'm transforming an array, doubling every number, I can just use in a map with a, a function that I pass in that takes the number and multiplies it by two. And that's just... It just makes it harder to follow the code and, and uh, dare I say, reason about. I kind of cringe when I have to say that. <laughs> that's always the tagline of functional programming, but... That's true, though. Yeah. Um, so the next is kind of lumped it under code breaking unexpectedly. And that's kind of ties in the idea of mutable data versus immutable data, where with mutable data, if we have some JavaScript object, we can change a property on it. Well, if we have lots of functions that can change that information, or if we accidentally call some weird method, like on an array, if you called splice versus slice accidentally, you could change that original array, and that may not be something you expected, and then you end up with weird um, mutation bugs later on. So we can kind of 
deal with that with things like object.freeze or immutable JS or anything to kind of lock down our data our data and make it immutable where we can't make those kind of changes. And then we don't have to worry so much about things sort of blowing up or, or having subtle issues uh, crop up in our code base in production by things changing underneath our feed. So the next one was this idea of too much code. And it's kind of a, a two-parter. But the idea is that we can sometimes end up with uh, code that just violates certain principles like the dry principle, don't repeat yourself. And this isn't something that functional programming can only solve. You can obviously solve this with lots of other paradigms like object-oriented. But with functional programming, we can get into those interesting ideas of curried functions where functions take one argument at a time. And so we can make very generalized functions that maybe do one thing like add, takes two numbers and adds them together. But if we curry that function, then we can use the process of partial application to create other functions out of it. I could create an increment function just by calling the add function once since it's curried and partially apply that argument. And it's kind of a toy example, but the, the broader picture is that I can have these very generalized functions and I can create more specialized functions out of them through partial application. And the hopeful net result is that I can write less code but accomplish just as much as I did before. And then kind of piggybacking off that, this idea of also combining multiple functions together to make more com complex functions. And that gets into the idea of function composition. Um, and the, the thing I focus on is this idea of piping, where I use uh, in the talk Ramda.js to show how you can pipe functions together, which is kind of like taking three separate functions or however many, and the result or return value of one function becomes the input to another function. And you just kind of daisy chain these functions together to get a final result. And then kind of taking that even a step further and looking at languages like Elm, Elixir, F-sharp that have a special operator for this called the pipe operator that just naturally pipes these functions together. And it's, in fact, a current TC39 proposal to add this pipe operator to JavaScript. So that's really cool. And then the next to the last one uh, is just this idea of scary, it's scary to refactor code. And if we don't have, you know, robust test suites, it, if we're going through and we're changing lots in our code base, things can blow up unexpectedly. So we can bring in things like static types. And this isn't, again, something that functional programming has a monopoly on, but it's very common in lots of functional languages like Elm. And so with static types, we can have a compiler that can check things for us and make sure that we're not, during a refactoring process, inadvertently calling functions in a wrong manner. And again, this is something we can solve in JavaScript as well with things like flow or migrating to TypeScript because we have static types available through those. And then the final thing is we're kind of take it a little step further in, in dealing with this issue of null where you have null and undefined in JavaScript and that can just, it pops up in lots of places and things can just blow up everywhere. If we're not careful, we don't do our due diligence to basically have lots of nested if statements or anything to check for nulls. And this one kind of hinged more on things that languages like Elm offer, although we can definitely get it in JavaScript too, using types like a maybe, where we can represent this in a, a lot cleaner manner and use um, functions that operate on this special maybe type that allow us to chain operations together that could kind of fail. 
as in we would have a null get returned, but we can kind of abstract that um, null handling that we would normally have to write. We can abstract that away through these special functions and that essentially ends up being monad. So if you watch the talk, you I, I kind of practically introduce what a monad is because that's that's definitely like the big scary word we always hear about in functional programming. And it, it's, it really, it, it um, mimics promises pretty well too. It's kind of tying that back to the JavaScript world. Um, but yeah, those are the the six. That was my mouthful and all those. <laughs> so those are awesome. Um, I feel, I mean, I personally, um, you know, like having pure functions um, and then using, you know, more declarative style. So those are things that I think I've like always said for newer developers, those are really good to get started with. So, and, and you kind of already talked about what that is. I wonder if the rest of the panel is comfortable jumping ahead to three and going into mutable data. And then we can, you know, do the rest from there. I'd like to uh, talk a little bit. I think it was point one was the uh, ease of testing. Yep. So what it was. Yep. That was it. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to dig in. I mean, this is a little bit of a, a deep topic here, but I wanted to dig in just a little bit about this. There's this concept of this theory of unit testing, right? And it, really goes hand in hand in test-driven development or test-first development, but certainly still applies to test-after development. And that is this theory that if things are hard to test, then it's bad code, right? And you talked about functional programming as a way to make uh, things that are hard to test easier to test. So is functional programming the solution or is it a matter of, Hey, if I've got to mock stuff, it's my those are, these are my code smells, right? If I'm mocking too many things and they're hard to mock, then my API is poor. I've got too many collaborators. I'm taking in too many parameters. Uh, so, is functional pro is the way that you're describing functional programming? Would you say that this is the actual solution? Hey, if this is hard to test, if you're finding it hard to test, you need to be using functional programming, or is it just one of a set of solutions? Or is it an entire? Is it trying to obviate the problem? Yeah, or I don't, would you say that that theory is even bunk? Right, that's just, just that's a stupid statement. That if it's hard to test, then it's bad code. Uh, with everything, there's there's kind of a, it depends. I mean, my approach from the talk is to, at least from my perspective of what purpose I was going toward, is that if you're dealing with, in general, hard to test code because you're having to deal with mocking. And I'm speaking more on the line of dealing with those kind of side effects, so like lots of HTTP requests in your code, or people don't typically print to the console. Well, that's another thing. It's that you have a lot of unnecessary setup or boilerplate that's around your main business logic. So if your core business logic is in pure functions where I can kind of go into that declarative thing too, where I'm... I'm describing the type of effects I want to have and want, sorry, want to happen that I can more easily test that code in a test-driven manner, um, kind of designing my API out. And that, that, that HTTP stuff, it doesn't disappear necessarily. It's something you still need to test. It's more so uh, borrowing from... Um, the uh, boundaries talk by um, Gary Bernhardt, this idea that 
if all your core business logic is in a lot of those pure functions or pure methods in Ruby sense, and we push kind of the collaboration or the side effects all to the boundaries, we don't have to test that as much. Um, I'm not sure if I'm quite answering the question yet or not. I'm, I'm not advocating that mocks are bad, per se. I think mocks do serve a purpose when we're designing kind of from a top-down fashion, especially when you're dealing with collaborators. My point was more on dealing with the side effects and having to mock those out just to get to testing your business logic. Gotcha. So you mentioned the Gary Bernhardt and the boundaries thing. You didn't talk about this really already, did we? No, it was... Something I mentioned in the notes kind of ties into those ideas. Yeah, could we? Could you cover that? I, that's a very interesting topic. Is that, that's something that you mentioned in the talk that I watched that you gave. Right now, I, I will admit it's been a it's been a while since I watched that talk, but <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of familiar with it too. So yeah, I'm going to be very fuzzy on this because um, I'm I retain more of the high level concepts and right. So, I mean, it's... Well, you, you mentioned this thing, functional core imperative shell. That's what you're talking about, right? Right. So, it's it's the general gist. When we say functional core, if, again, if our business logic, the things that are really driving our application, what's important in terms of our application, if all of that is in pure function, that's easier to test drive because we don't have to deal with all the mocking and setup. And then when we get to the, the boundaries, so to speak, where, say, different layers or pieces of the system have to, eventually they have to talk to each other. We have to send stuff out to the outside world and and accept stuff from the outside world, those those kind of side effects. If we push those out again to sort of the boundaries or that imperative shell, then at least from my experience, we have to test that kind of code a lot less because it's not muddied up in all of our business logic. We don't have to test HTTP multiple times is what I'm saying. If we kind of push um, that out to the boundaries or the the shell of the application and um, we could do, we can do things like kind of mocking collaborator tests at that level too. But I, I think at a practical level, it is nice to have sort of integration level tests um, at those layers too, just to make sure things are wired up. Maybe you don't, mm-hmm. you know, handle every possible code branch because that's just integration tests can be very slow and that's a lot to manage. But you know, focusing on your happy path, even at those at the imperative shell where you are testing your side effects, you're testing everything wired up. That's still a lot of value there too. So I watched that somebody recommended that talk to me when I like first at, when I was at my very first job and kind of what it impressed on me was um, refactoring the code that I'm working in or as I'm building out a feature, um, you know, keeping your methods small. And that was like the functional core is trying to get as much of, like you're saying, the core logic into these like little pure functions. So I guess all I'm trying to say is, you know, like for newer developers, if they wanted to follow this, I think you could focus on refactoring what you have there and and trying to pull out, you know, as much logic from like larger methods that you might have to have mocks in. So I'd like to understand this concept just a little bit more because I think this is actually pretty difficult. Even as a very experienced programmer, when you get, you come across the concept of, hey, take your core business logic and put it into a functional core I oftentimes with the typical websites that I might build, which are a lot about data collection and display, 
when you talk about core web, core business logic, oftentimes I feel like, well, my core business logic is that I grab some data from the user and I put it in it, stored into a database in a certain way. And then I display some of that data or other data in combination with that back to the user. And it's how I format that data and display it. That's a lot of what the work that I typically do with websites. So is there a way, I mean, I know that this is a podcast, we don't have visual code, but is there like an example you could give of how you take, you know, your typical work, I'm not talking about something complex, like I'm calculating, you know, trajectories for missiles, right? Which obviously <laughs> lends itself to a very functional approach, right? <laughs> data in, data out. But something more like like this, a lot of this sort of stuff we deal with a lot, how can you get move, how can you find business logic and put that into a functional core? Yeah, so I think the first thing you would probably want if you want to move to that type of concept is first throw an integration test on it if you don't already, just for some refactoring safety as you kind of um, pull out those pieces and then wire them back up. Um, but once you, you've kind of got that in place, I you, you mentioned like just you know fetching some users' information from the database. It's yeah, as as far as like a practical example of this, if whatever manipulation you have to do on that user data, or you know dealing with a shopping cart, computing totals, um, trying to think, it's always on the spot examples that are the, the hardest. You know, um, if you need to yeah. pull information out of, kind of manipulate the user. So one boundary is let's say an API layer, you're accepting some new input for a user, updating a user profile. So you have a very high level boundary there that accepts that those parameters through a controller or whatever um, framework you're using. What happens after that and before it gets stored in the database, whether that's transforming some more in, transforming that user information into say a user object, um, computing some additional information, maybe I don't know, let's say the user has some hobbies and you're adding a new hobby to the user. Um, that would be an example where I'm going to transform the user, add in this hobby, but it's all pure functions performing that. And then at the, the outer boundary of that, where we have produced this new output of whatever the user needs to be transformed into, then we store that part, that part in the database. So we only have sort of two... Um, two boundaries, the API and the database, those are doing our side effects, but everything in between are those pure functions that are transforming, kind of massaging this data into what we need. And then you'll, you'll have some sort of coordinator that's in that layer that's calling these pure functions. And it's the one that coordinates those and potentially is going to save that information to the database. Is that, that's a very rough example, not very specific, but well, I think that's pretty good for such on the spot. <laughs> yeah, and you covered kind of what I was going to say too. So same thing, like when you pull it out of the database. Um, I see a lot of times like newer developers, um, you know, they'll have their, you know, whatever happens when the promise resolves and they have that all like within the same method. And then whatever happens when the promise rejects and they have that all within the same method. And if you could, you know, this is like best practice too, like extract that into individual methods that you can test mm -hmm. their like pure functions where you're doing the transformations on like the error object or the response object. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, even when you have a promise chain, 
just naming your functions that you pass into your then or catch callbacks, for example, and letting those be pure functions. That's a, yep. that's a huge step too. Yep. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. In the real world, JavaScript runs in the V8 virtual machine. Like there's a few instances of it that run in Chakra and there's Nitro and there's a couple other things, but predominantly um, it's running in V8. And whether or not it's running in V8, most of these engines share a lot of similar characteristics. And one of the things that I've been concerned with, which, uh, well, there's this kind of paradox where anytime somebody says something is faster or makes it like morally superior or whatever, you know, people want to flock to it. But then sometimes those two things are at odds. And so with functional programming, there's a lot of ideas about it that I like. But what I don't like is the idea that if I have, and, and this could be premature optimization because maybe I should build it functional first and then go back and say, oh, here's a problem and then fix it. But you're creating a ton of objects, you know, all the time. And I know there's some tricks, like you can assign things to null to hint to the garbage collector, like, hey, this will be ready for collection. Just go ahead and get it out of the way. Don't wait for a cycle. You know, there's some, some little tricks you can do. But I like what happens to your performance when you're writing functional programs in JavaScript as opposed to a language that was designed for functional programs? Yeah, so this, I guess, kind of prefacing is I've never had to deal with the scale where this has been a problem per se, like you mentioned, because we are with dealing with the immutable data, you, you don't change things. You always create new data, which means you're always creating new objects. And that's just, that could be a lot of GC thrash, like you mentioned, but I've, I honestly, I've never dealt with performance issues that if there was an issue, that's what it was. And that's again, just not the scale I haven't worked at, but it's, it's a valid point to bring up. And there are th libraries like immutable JS that I, that I know offset some of those concerns, at least with certain data structures where we can kind of get away with sharing um, data when we have a, say, a list, for example, which is kind of different from an array. It's more of a linked list where one element refers to the next element, where when we sort of copy or make a new list, like we put a, a new item in the front of the list, sort of a we call that cons operation, another lovely jargon word, but you can get away with just reusing that previous list and creating a new reference with the, the new item in the front because that new item in the front is just referring to the old item anyway. So you can kind of get away with not generating such large churn or so much churn and creating all these large objects over and over by using libraries like immutable JS. Now I'm not, 
on the kind of object side of it, I, I think they might be using uh, those tree tri data structures. I've never learned how to pronounce that. It's T-R-I-E, but you can get a lot of data sharing out of those data structures as well. So that's Isn't it pronounced tri-e? Tri-e, maybe. <laughs> tri-e. <laughs> Tri-e-i-o. <laughs> but yeah, all that to say that with functional programming we have programming we have ways to address some of these concerns and again it, it's hard for me to speak to it too much just cuz i've never had to i've never encountered performance issues because i was generating objects and, over and, and that's over. probably the case for most people like when when i think about things that would be performance sensitive i think audio processing video processing mm-hmm. and game engines stuff we're using like uh, machine learning and Okay. I guess some people are writing that in JavaScript these days. <laughs> Dude, they just came out with TensorFlow.js. And they are definitely are doing it in JavaScript. Not sure that's the right language there, but <laughs> it is being done. So earlier we were talking about like, you know, we want to move business logic to functional programming to make it easier to test. So in my in my mind, there's there's probably like three three types of programming that come to the top of my mind. There's there's processing, which are the things that I just mentioned. There's like what I like user experience logic. I won't call it business logic. I'll call it user experience logic, which is like you're rearranging things on the page. You're creating flows for like how credit card payments going to process things that are not very intensive at all. They're things that are happening on a click by click basis. Um, and then another type of programming would be network programming, where you have streams of data that are connected to each other. This could be um, like log-based, either logging or database or something like that. So what areas do you think functional programming shines in the most? And where do you think it may have weaknesses in terms of the type of programming you're doing or the type of problem that you're trying to solve? Yeah. So granted, most of my experiences, lots of cred apps. So I, I would lean more toward the the UX side of it. But I don't, I don't see outside of maybe some of those performance issues, I don't see where functional programming can necessarily fail in any one area. Well, and, and I would imagine in a language like Haskell that's built to be functional, they probably optimize the shiznit out of it. And- right you could write something that would be completely terrible in JavaScript, but like sings in Haskell. So I, I don't even know if I might be asking the wrong question. So thank you for clarifying that. No, it's a fair question. And I'll, I'll claim just a little bit of ignorance on some of the more system um, system engineering side of it. Uh, like you mentioned with uh, networking and honestly, I've not used Haskell very much. I, I do know there are optimizations in there. So I, I think functional programming, it's relevant for a lot of those types of paradigms, just in that in each of those, there's just lots of transformation of data because that's, that's really just what functions are doing. They're taking in one thing and they're producing something else based on it. And so you can apply that to lots of other um, paradigms. So. Cool. And to clarify, I would re- I'm like if anybody's interested in functional programming, I would certainly say, regardless of what the metrics are, until you hit a wall where you know you have a problem, 
definitely go with the learning style that suits you and then break the rules once you realize, oh, in this particular case, it doesn't work to do X, Y, or Z. And most likely you'll never develop something that's good enough to get enough users to be heavily utilized enough to have that problem. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of deals with the, the premature optimization too. Like we don't want to just assume there's going to be a problem without first measuring that and seeing that. I mean, even breaking the rules, I, I've broken the rules in JavaScript. Like um, doing like a, having a function that uses maybe a, a reduce on an array inside of it. And inside I might do some mutation, but it's just all local variables and you can, you can get away with doing something like that because it's not affecting the whole global um, state of the rest of your application because it's just some local variable, right? Famous last words. I know, I know. <laughs> One thing, so I would like to, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead, um, but I definitely want to go into everything that you talked about with static types and how refactoring can be scary. Do you think that's too far to jump ahead? Can we like, if we have extra time at the end, can we then back up and go into some of the in-between stuff? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Um, yeah, because you, you know, you talked about using TypeScript or Flow um, and, you know, all the problems we have in JavaScript and you have to be super defensive in your code to, you know, avoid exceptions. So that was really good. And then how you almost, I think, kind of like sprung it on the people in the talk about monads because... That is a concept that is super fuzzy to me, and you did a pretty good job of making it less fuzzy. Yep. Um, so do we? Sorry, I just want to make sure are we on just the static types or kind of get into the, the the monad part of it. Let's let's talk about the static types and then go into if if you can pretty much just kind of try to you know, do the last point in your talk. I think sure. as, best we, as best we can on a podcast, it's a little bit hard without code examples, but. Right. Yeah. So it's, and again, I, I'm coming from a, an Elm mindset, which has a really a good type system. And it's not to say flow and TypeScript don't either, except they, they do have some of the escape hatches like the any type, um, where if you, if you don't know the type or you're dealing with some third-party library, you just kind of throw your hands up and it's like, okay, it's any. So it's the wild, wild west again. But um, speaking just in general, especially with, you know, Elm in mind or TypeScript without any, with, with static types, it's your, your interfaces or your sort of the interface or the expectations of when one function calls another that it's calling it with the right type of arguments. So one of my silly examples I use a lot is if you were refactoring your code base and let's say you had an add function that takes in two numbers and it returns the, the summation of those two numbers. And for whatever reason you refactored and now you're accidentally calling that add function with a number and a string. Well, in JavaScript, we know if we try to add a number and string together, we're going to get type coercion and we're just going to get some really weird, interesting results sometimes. But when we you know, bring static types into the mix, the, the compiler that whatever type system you're using can detect you, you can't, that add is, that takes two numbers and you can't call it with a string. So at compile time, you, it's going to throw an error up to you as a developer, it's not throwing an error in production for your users that, hey, there's a problem here. Here's where the problem's at. You probably meant to call it with 
uh, a number instead of a string. And so the point is, absent of a really, really robust um, test suite, you can make those kind of refactors where you maybe make a little mistake like that, but the compiler is going to safeguard you and let you know there's a problem so you don't you're more confident that you don't you're not going to ship new buggy code with regressions in it that's not to say the bugs still won't crop in uh, creep in there at some point but that's to me probably the simplest explanation of why i love static types um from a refactoring standpoint i concur with that so you talked about that now, and then I think if we go into talking about Elm, talking about the maybe type there, and how if we went with a purely functional programming language, how that gets even better. Right. So, and this, yeah, this is a definitely a hard one to kind of explain without. <laughs> yeah, so, even so as I, even as I'm saying it, I'm visualizing it in my head. So. Right. I guess the best thing to do is let's just talk in terms of promises for now, because I think that'll maybe make it simpler to kind of visualize. So, if you're if if you recall with promises, when you know you fetch something or whatever you're fetched from a database API, it returns back a promise. And it's the promise of some value eventually coming back. So you attach a then callback to get access to that information. We'll, we'll pretend we're not using async await here either. But you get that information in that then callback, like if you fetched a user. And kind of one of the examples I used in the talk was um, if you were to try to fetch a user's best friend, for example. So you have to look up, first look for the user. That could be a null or whatnot. But if we talk about in terms of promises, we'll eventually get that user in the then callback. Now we want to get the, say, the user's best friend. So we need to make an additional request. Maybe this isn't the most performant thing, but you're going to make another request to get the user's best friend based on an, uh, the ID of this best friend. So let's say you have a user.bestfriend ID or whatever. So you're making a new request inside of your then callback, which means you're returning a promise inside of that then callback. So if you're familiar with promise chaining, you can return a promise inside of a then callback and it kind of replaces the old promise at the outer then callback with this new promise you just returned inside. So it's kind of flattening it out and you've just swapped out this new promise and then you can attach another then callback and get the, the best friend inside of it. So it's this idea of just chaining things that may or may not succeed. And if they succeed, you just keep getting the value you want inside of the then callback. So taking that idea to say the maybe type, which is available in lots of functional languages, sometimes it's called the option type. If we think of it as, as a moment as like a special promise where with the maybe you have two possible values, either I, I have the thing the user, for example, and it's, if I get the user, it's kind of contained in a box or something like that. If I don't have the user, then I have this nothing value, which is kind of our replacement for the null value. But the, the main benefit you get out of this particular type and where the scary monads comes in here is that if I want to access the thing inside the maybe, I can call it with a function similar to how I call a then callback on a promise. 
And inside of that function or inside of that then callback, I get the thing I'm asking for, which is the user. With the maybe, if inside of that function call, I return a new maybe, like if I wanted to fetch the user's best friend, then it also kind of does a replacement or a switch where this new maybe I've returned inside of a function or callback becomes the new outer maybe. Just like I can return a promise within inside of a promise, I can do the same thing with this maybe and then attach another function through maybe the pipe operator or something like that. All of that to say, I don't have to worry about writing if this thing is null, else, if this thing is null, else. I don't have to worry about is null going to happen or not. I can just attach or chain this through a couple function calls and I've abstracted out the knowledge that null exists here and I can kind of lay out what's my core business logic here of how do I want to get this data and transform it and I never have to worry about the null. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but there you go. <laughs> I think that is, for me, that was very helpful. Um, even hearing you explain it a second time is even more helpful. Um, I would encourage people to check out your talk so they can see the actual code examples. Um, but I, I understand that that's not the easiest thing to explain <laughs> at all without code samples, but I think you did an awesome job. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess the big thing for me with that too is that there is, I think there's kind of a, a divide in the functional programming world where people are, some people are really stressing that you have to know the laws of monads where it gets into the math and category theory and all those aspects of it. And I think those things are really interesting, but if that's the first thing you see when you try to come to these concepts, it's just going to scare you away and you're going to think this is just a lot of um, ceremony that is just not helpful to you. And so kind of framing it in, instead in sort of those practical terms, like, oh, I don't have to worry about null here. It's, and it's just like chaining um, promises together. Now, promise isn't exactly like a monad, but it, the, the, the um, metaphor kind of helps here. Yeah, because the way that you explained it too, um, I would say like a year and a half ago or so when someone tried to explain it to me, that's also the example that they used. And um, that really did feel like the, at least from my understanding, that seemed like a good example. Yeah. <laughs> it's still very, I mean, it's a fuzzy concept for me because it's not something that I've done a lot with, but it definitely helped. Yeah, I've, I've gotten a lot of benefits of it out of it. And there are, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned in the talk, I don't know if I gave links, there are libraries in JavaScript to kind of bring this back to JavaScript. There are libraries that provide maybe types. Now you don't have the necessary static typing unless you're using Flow or TypeScript, but it gives you that same sort of idea of chaining method calls where something could be a null or a nothing, but you don't have to worry about that, that abstraction there. And you can just write a lot cleaner JavaScript code to deal with it. Nulls. Awesome. Okay, I think we will wrap it up around there since we're coming close to our hour marker. And Joe, do you want to go first with picks? Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean, the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, 
flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do.co slash jabber. Sure, I can go first with picks. I recently read this uh, 2018 web developer roadmap by Coveburst, like a little uh, blog post. And I thought it was pretty interesting. It just lists a whole bunch of um, information. It's like this map on your skill set and where, from a sort of a high level, it's like, hey, if you're here, here's all the places you can go. And it mentions frameworks and build tools and CSS and all that sort of stuff. And I thought it was a very interesting read. So uh, there'll be a link in the show notes. It's called the 2018 Web Developer Roadmap. And the other thing I want to choose, I want to pick is a new front-end framework because there are not enough front-end frameworks in the world. <laughs> I just barely found out about this front-end framework that's been around for a little while called Svelte. When I think about Svelte, it's not like I'm using Svelte in any projects, but what I think is super cool and awesome about Svelte is the fact that it is the framework that doesn't produce a framework on the client. So the way that it works is you write this, whatever code you're going to write, and at compile time or at development time, you actually run it through a compilation process and out comes just ES6 and there is no framework library that gets downloaded to the browser. So in the browser, all that's happening and all that's running is plain old ES6 uh, or ES5, actually. And um, there's no like runtime library like there is with Angular or React or um, Vue. There's no runtime library that gets downloaded, which means that there's no minimum overhead for processing time. It's a very cool concept that you write this code and all gets compiled to just regular old JavaScript with no runtime to manipulate the browser. I think it's super cool. And so that's my other pick is Svelte, S-V-E-L-T-E. Awesome, thanks. Okay, AJ. I'm gonna check that out because that sounds kind of cool. Um, Does that sound like you're up your alley, AJ? Maybe. Maybe. I'm, I'm all about getting rid of build tools or if there's going to be build tools, put them in the server where they should be built and not on my desktop where I don't want to have to download 10 gigs of NPM. Well, now you can have native modules if you're on the latest Chrome. So there you go, depending on what your users are using. So uh, there's this game. See, this is up Joe's alley now. There's a game called super fight have you heard of it? you had me at game have you heard of it joe super fight i have and i own the base and a lot of the expansions oh well i just bought the base because i played it at one point and i was having my birthday party and i wanted to, to play it with people that came over um i don't know that super fight is a game for every crowd but if you're listening to this show it's probably a game for your crowd <laughs> um, just I, I'm, I'm just thinking like left brain right brain type of thing like I, I have some friends that are not in my normal group that would struggle with it but it's very creative it's kind of like apples to apples without rules 
you pick a card that is a character card, and it's going to be something like a grandma or a shark wearing a suitcase or um, 1980s rock star. So a character card is just any random noun generally describing a person or uh, a normal-ish animal or an alien. And then you have ability cards, which are things like with a a flamethrower, stuck in a potato sack, um, 80 feet tall, uh, 120 years old, uh, with ninja skills, etc. And so you pick a couple of the cards that are character cards. You have, say you have five people, you pick a couple of the cards that are ability cards and you choose the best one, unless your character card has two blanks on it, in which case you get to choose two abilities. And then you lay down, you, you hold that secret. The next person that's to your left is doing the same thing. So only two people are playing at a time. They lay it down and then the fight begins and they have to convince all the other players around the table why an 80 foot tall grandma who's an ace at bowling would beat a shark in a blimp with a flamethrower. And it can be a lot of fun if you're with a group of people that can just get creative and um, silly. Uh, And so it's one of my favorite games because it's an argument game. And since the arguments don't have to be muddled with facts to get to the truth of the matter, it's something I can easily win. So super fight. (laughs) (laughs) I highly recommend the eighties expansion to super fight. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go, if that's cool. And then we'll go to you, Jeremy. So my picks, I'm going to pick a band, because I haven't picked one in a while, that I've been listening to as I'm working, called American Dollar. And then the second one I learned about uh, last week was uh, instead of using uh, Git Push Force, you can do Force with Lease. So if you're like rebasing and somebody else has pushed up and you're trying to push with Git Force, you're going to like override their stuff. But if you use this force with lease flag, uh, it's not going to do that. So it won't override if anybody else has made commits to your remote branch ahead of you. So it's kind of just like a a safe way uh, if you're rebasing and doing stuff like that and you need to force push. And that is it for me. Okay, Jeremy, your turn. What's the point of the get YOLO alias if you're going to make it safe? (laughs) I don't know. But yeah, that's funny. Okay, right. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, uh, let's see. So probably the first one, I'll be a little self-promoting here. I, I meant, forgot to mention it earlier. I do have a book on Elm. So if you're interested in learning more about Elm, uh, especially after you watch the talk or anything like that, I have a book called Programming Elm from the Pragmatic Programmers. So it kind of takes you through knowing no Elm at all to getting familiar with the syntax and building applications and then gets into things like testing and doing performance measurements, um, debugging, development tools, all, all sorts of that, and going all the way up to single-page applications. So I would go ahead and pick that. Um, another one is a, a book that uh, we've been reading. A group of us kind of do a book club over at Test Double called The Secrets of Consulting by Gerald Weinberg. And it's a kind of a anecdotal book that provides lots of um, resources or tips, um, lots of 
weird kind of, um, he, he has lots of laws and things he comes up with. They're, they're kind of tongue in cheek that he uses alliteration. Like one is the, um, uh, what was it? And of course now it's failing me to find, I'm failing it to find it. Um, there is a Rudy's rutabaga rule, I think, which it, it's toward the beginning of the chapter. I, I can't quite remember what was in that, but it, it provides lots of good tongue in cheek insight into being a consultant and, how you need to kind of have your frame of mind, um, mainly the idea being that you're trying to help your client succeed. It's not about you kind of swooping in to save the day, but you want to help them feel like they've succeeded and you leave them kind of better as a result of that. So it's a good little book to read through. Um, so I recommend that. And then finally, I just want to mention a really cool conference in October called Connect Tech. It's um, probably the largest web and mobile conference in the Southeast. It's based out of Atlanta and they cover three days workshops and then um, breakout sessions, JavaScript, um, mobile design, UX, testing, all, all kinds of things. It's a fairly large conference and the organizers are really great people. They put on a, a great show. So just want to um, promote them too. Uh, you should definitely check it out if you're wanting to uh, go to a cool web conference here in my neck of the woods, Southeast. Uh, those are my picks. Awesome. Yep. Please head this way. I guess that is probably it for today. Unless anybody else has anything else to add. Nope. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was awesome having you, Jeremy. And thanks so much, everybody. We will see you next week. Yep. Good. Thank you all. Bye. Bye. Adios. Thanks for coming on the show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.